This is episode one of the Immunology Podcast, merging stem cells with immunology with Dr. Felipe Pieria. Hey everyone, this is Dr. Jason Goldsmith and Dr. Brenda Roud. Welcome to the first episode of the Immunology Podcast, where we have conversations with immunologists. We are very excited to be launching this podcast, and we have some great guests lined up over the next few months, including Drs. Carl's June at the University of Pennsylvania, Judy Lieberman at Harvard Medical School, and Bernardo Franklin at the University of Bonn. If you'd like to learn more about the Immunology Podcast and upcoming guests, visit our website at www.immunologypodcast.com or follow us on Twitter at, at @immunopodcast. Today, we have Dr. Felipe Pieria from Lund University on the podcast to talk about his research understanding hematopoietic and immune cell identities and translating these findings into novel gene and cell therapies. We've also got our usual roundup of recent highlights in immunology coming up. But first... Are you using dendritic cells for your research? With the Immunocall Dendritic Cell Culture Kit from Stem Cell Technologies, you can generate immature as well as mature dendritic cells from human monocytes. Learn more at www.stemcell.com slash DC Culture Kit. All right, it's roundup time. How are you today, Brenda? Oh, I'm doing great. Very excited about our first roundup of the season. Excellent, excellent. Yeah, so am I. And so I guess we're going to start here, dive in. Uh, the first paper is called Expansible Residence Decentralizes Immune Homeostasis. This paper is by Sathe Wajisingh. It's a very interesting paper here. It came out on the 17th of March in Nature. And it really kind of does a very impressive deep dive into the uh, role of resident T cells. And it's an impressive tour de force of work because some of their experiments go up to 450 days. And they use a large number of mouse models. They do parabiosis experiments. They do intravital microscopy. Uh, it's it's insane in a good way, but very, very impressive. And so what this paper really does is it tries to establish kind of the half-life and kinetics and homeostasis of resident T cells. So if we think about T cells generally, we have, you know, our naive T cells, and then we have our memory T cells, and then we have these resident T cells that kind of stay in the tissue. And so they knew that um, resident T cells typically don't require TCR stimulation, but these regular memory cells don't need TCR-dependent signaling to survive. But these resident memory T cells, the ones that sit in the tissue, look and have a lot of properties like they have gone undergone recent TCR stimulation. So they kind of want to understand what these cells do after they're formed. So if you form these resident tissue cells, do they sit in the tissue for a long time? Do they move in and out of the lymph and blood compartments, they move between tissues, so on and so forth. So they used a, a bunch of fancy mouse systems. Um, it's kind of hard to describe just on a podcast, but they use a, a system known as the P14 system. And this is a pre-recombined TCR that will respond to a specific virus, the lymphocytic chorioamenangitis virus, LCMV. And so these are P14 immune chimeric mice. And then they do this on top of CD45.1 or thigh 1.1 to be able to track uh, host versus donor immune cells. And so they use this as a system to have a preset antigenic response and then see what happens with these resident cells once they have been formed. And so then they do a host of experiments, just looking at how long they sit in various tissues. They do parabiosis experiments, you know, where they uh, stitch two mice's circulation together to get your uh, double Frankenmouse. Um, and then they try to see if the mouse that had the resident tissue 
or not, which one that had been kind of primed if immune cells move from one mouse to the other. And so through this, they show that the resident tissue T cells really just stay where they are. There's some exceptions, notably the small bowel seems to be more in homeostasis um, with the circulation or the other mouse in these studies. But large, largely these tissue, these T cells just sit there. They don't leave. They don't change. They're ready to be primed and activated again. If you do another antigenic exposure to the same antigen, they don't get it. It's not like because they were already there, they're not going to respond anymore. They actually go at it hard and uh, respond appropriately and expand further. So a question I have is that we already mostly knew that resident T cells are a very stable population in the tissues where that they inhabit. What is the, the angle that this paper has that really makes the, the difference? So they track it for hundreds of days and show that they never leave. It's not like they're being generated by continual stimulation and then move to the tissue and then die eventually. They just sit there forever. And then what they show is then they take these, um, there's this new model that I hadn't heard about before where you take uh, mice from a pet shop and you co-incubate them with mice from our SPF conditions or standard pathogen-free conditions or specific pathogen-free conditions to like have all this massive antigenic load from the real world come. And in this case, what they're showing is that when you have that antigenic load, it's not like the existing resident cells don't get thrown out and then new ones come in for the new pathogens. They just expand the population. That wasn't known either. There had been some thought that you could only have so many T cells in the tissue at a time um, and that you're kind of capped and so that there would be an exchange as new threats and challenges come. And that's not actually the case. They just straight up add more. And so it shows that you can do this co-culture, co-incubation system with these these how you know these pet store mice and you just double down and add more immune cells and then they also identify the half-life in the various tissues the female track was the one of the more sturdy so the the uterus and vagina didn't shift when you added in um, these other pathogens from the uh, pet shop mice they actually just doubled down on their own antigenic load that they already had but the small intestine would drop down and really start responding to the new system which kind of shows you being my favorite organism, organ, of course, that the gut is much more sensitive to the microbiota status of whatever it's being assaulted with at a time. And so you can imagine these uh, pet shop mice have all these other microbiota come in and the gut has to have a much more localized tissue response than everything else potentially. Um, and so those were where they'd see a shift. And then obviously they showed the normal shift that we'd expect in the lymph tissue. And so there'd be homeostasis there and then a changeover and the response is there. So it's really just an impressive tour de force of understanding the half-life uh, and the persistence of resonant cells versus memory cells versus just lymphoid floating cells in response, using the T cells as a uh, model system in this case to really understand this process. And it's, it's actually pretty impressive how long it lasts. Nice. Thanks. I have two words for you, Jason. I'm listening. The tumor microbiome. Ooh, I like this. So... For some time, uh, it has been described that there are bacteria that colonize and live within human tumors uh, that are found in tumors from patients, and that uh, not only do they do they live there, but also they correlate different strains of bacteria seem to correlate with different types of tumors, and. There's a lot of work done, uh, and the, for example, places as, such as the Weizmann Institute in Israel, 
And the paper I want to talk about today actually comes from the lab of Jardinia Samuels from the Weizmann Institute. And it's called Identification of Bacteria-Derived HLA-Bound Peptides in Melanoma. It was published in Nature in the same issue as the paper you presented uh, on the 17th of March. And the first authors are Shelley Klaura and Adi Nagler as uh, co-first authors. And in this paper, they looked at different metastases from nine patients, and they actually found several unique uh, HLA HLA-1 and HLA-2 peptides uh, that are were derived from bacterial proteomes. And they identify overall 41 species of bacteria in this in these samples. And they in fact show that there are bacteria living inside the melanoma uh, tumors, and both melanoma cells and the immune cells present peptides derived from this bacteria in their HLA. Of proteins, which I thought was really mind-blowing. Have you heard of bacteria living inside of tumors before? So I hadn't known that part of it. I mean, I think I remember one little thing about it, but not how they get there. But what's interesting about this is there's this whole movement now to understand the role of the microbiome in immuno-oncology um, to the point that certain microbiota can affect the metabolism of drugs and make them more or less effective for chemotherapies or immune checkpoints. But also the microbiome seems to prime and different compositions can be either good or bad to prime the immune response against tumors. And so they're finding that germ-free mice or uh, mice with a response to uh, a checkpoint inhibitor versus those without, these different types of uh, mice, these different types of um, statuses of the microbiome actually affect the ability of the host immune system to respond to tumors. And so it seems like the bugs prime it, but I didn't know that there were bugs growing in tumors and how they got there, I have zero idea. And then how then now they're presenting antigen as well. Then that leads to a whole bunch of questions. Like, can you target them? Which is what it sounds like they're getting at here. Yeah. So they identified this several peptides. And also interestingly, they seem to find specific HLA alleles that were most likely to be presenting um, bacterial peptides that also are more, more hydrophobic than endogenous peptide in general, which seems to correlate with the reason why they bind better to these HLA uh, alleles. And they uh, indeed find that certain peptides, they could indeed find T cells that could respond to these peptides being presented uh, that were derived from the melanoma uh, samples from this patient. So in kind of in summary, what they do is they identify a myriad of bacterial species living in these tumor samples. They show using several microscopy uh, techniques and also phishing the, the uh, 16S RNA sequences from samples and they show that the bacteria are literally inside the cells. They show that both melanoma uh, cell lines, uh, so tumor cell lines and antigen-presenting cell lines, when co-culture with this bacteria, can take bacteria in and present its peptides in on its surface, on, its, on their own uh, MHC molecules, and that some of these peptides can be immunogenic in 
T cells derive from the patients where they come from. Uh, so I think that in general is super interesting how this 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 the, the results from this paper and whether this can have some in um, some usefulness or some uh, impact in in treatment is, is still to be said because it's it's very I think it's very new and I don't know how many of these peptides would actually be presented to enough uh, levels to be actually good targets. But I think in general, as a first, as a proof of principle, it's, it's really, really interesting. Well, that's fascinating. I wonder if that could then lead to some cell-based therapies with chimeric antigen receptors that are targeted against these bacterial peptides, since they're obviously going to be somewhat unique compared to the host. Yeah, so we'll see what the future brings in tumor microbiome research. Indeed. All right. Well, I guess it's my turn for the next one. Um, you know, uh, continuing on the theme here, I'm going to stay in the gut because it's, of course, the best organ and is, you know, an important immune organ in all of itself. And this is a very interesting immunometabolism paper um, out in Science on March 19th by Sullivan et al. And it's titled Gamma Delta T Cells Regulate the Intestinal Response to Nutrient Sensing. And this was very fascinating. Uh, so what they basically did is they had two diets, a high protein and a high carbohydrate diet. And they showed in step one that gut cells and pterocytes responded to the high carbohydrate diet by shifting in a couple of ways. They upregulated genes that would handle higher levels of carbohydrates for metabolism. That's not super surprising. But then they also demonstrated that these uh, this was associated with a shift towards stem cells and transient amplifying cells in a differential in a change differentiation program, demonstrating that the gut was responding and shifting to cell types, you know, transient amplifying stem cells and stem cells that uh, prefer preferentially consumed glucose. And then they identified from there, but they kind of took it a next step. And this was actually the group that did intervital microscopy. I realized that I had screwed up when talking about my other people. They didn't do intervital, but these group did. And they found that intraepithelial lymphocytes and laminopropria lymphocytes swarmed to the base of the crypts and swarmed to the tissue in response to the sugar and actually moved there and then let, and then they followed the signaling cascade and figured out that there was gamma delta T cells that regulate this carbohydrate transcriptional program. And so through a series of elegant experiments using antibodies, depletion strategies, and knockouts of the various cell populations, they identify specifically it's these cells that are doing it. And they are doing it by regulating innate lymphocyte 3 or ILC3 secretion of IL-22. And so in the presence of sugar, these gamma delta T cells tell ILC3s in a mechanism that they haven't figured out yet to downregulate IL-22. And they show that the IL-22 suppresses this program at baseline, which is really interesting because IL-22 is also known as a... Uh, driver of STAT3 activation and general wound healing. And so there's a lot of interesting crosstalk here. And then they, in a series of experiments and part of this, they show that this program persists for quite a while and takes time to shift off. And then they also identify that this program uh, through laminopropria signaling of the gamma delta T cells is going through uh, JAG2, which is a notch ligand. And so it's upregulating notch-based signaling, notch wind pathways, which are the, you know, the molecular switch that drives this, you know, de-differentiated state. So you have higher notch wind when you're in a high glucose state. And so it's an incredibly elegant set of experiments. I was really impressed with it and how they really were able to dissect all the way down the immune pathways what's going on. And of course, it does 
in a good way leave some extra work to do so they can get their follow-up funding and papers out on that linkage between the uh, gamma delta T cells and the ILCs. But it's like a very nice stud of studies. They show that it may be uh, cyclooxygenase dependent in tough cells as well as part of the regulatory pathway, but they don't have a, a better sense quite yet of that linkage between the gamma delta and the ILCs. But then they show the ILCs directly through IL-22 uh, activity or what suppresses this pathway at baseline. So it's, it's, it's a very interesting study. It's right up my field of diet microbiome and immunology and intestinal differentiation. It has all of, all of my favorite food groups at once, pun intended, hashtag dad joke. Um, and I thought it was fascinating. And it's actually been kind of <laughs> making the social media rounds as well. I've seen it on a couple of spots on Twitter and being pushed already. It's pretty cool. So I have two questions for you. Regarding the role of the gamma delta T cells, how do they show that they are crucial for this uh, for this cascade of events? And do they dive a little bit deeper and how do they uh, sense the change in diet? So the first part, yes. The second part, no. So for the first part, they do uh, gamma delta knockout versus alpha beta T cell knockouts. They do also antibody depletion as a first pass and show that it's dependent on that. They show that if you just do enteroid culture and do these, it doesn't work. But if you co-culture with immune cells, I think I think it was a co-culture, I have to dig back in. But they did a couple things where they either recapitulated the downstream signaling um, through like the IL-22 inhibiting it. They um, they also did the, the ligands, I believe. And I think they at one point did a co-culture as well um, and demonstrated that it was the gamma delta T. I think they really locked that in pretty well between the knockouts and the germ-free studies. And, um, they, they did a bunch and really demonstrated that it was those, but I don't think they did a, they didn't explain how the immune cells are sensing the sugar. I mean, we know that the diet is going to be in homeostasis, the blood, so you're gonna have a different blood glucose level, but they don't go into what they don't go into the how the gamma delta T cells are doing something to the ILCs or what program that is. And they were they, they couldn't find a good cytokine signal outside of IL-22 to begin with. And so they, they I don't think they have dissected that part of it yet. Very nice. Wrapping up, I have one more paper to share with you. And this uh, paper is all about my favorite kamikaze cells of the immune system. Of course, those are the neutrophils um, and how neutrophils can activate uh, antigen presenting cells and monocytes uh, by releasing their famous uh, nets, their neutrophil extracellular traps. So this paper is titled The Cy Cytosolic DNA Sensor Seagas Recognizes Neutrophil Extracellular Traps and kind of gives the whole thing away, I have to say. Uh, first author, Falco Apple from the lab of Arturo Siklinski uh, at the Charité Institute in Berlin. So one, one from uh, Germany. And in this paper, they try to uh, address the fact that we know that, as you know, neutrophils, they when they can get activated, when they sense when they are activated by by the, the recognized microbes or in the in, in the bloodstream or they're coming in contact with uh, molecular danger signals they get activated and one of the things they do as a really kind of large large offensive is they release uh this the so-called nets 
which are a mix of uh, chromatin. So they, they really kill themselves and they release their chromatin, uh, you know, with, with proteins. And uh, one of them are is the neutrophil elastase, which is characteristic of this of these nets and peroxidases and other a uh, lot of uh, and, and this mix of, of DNA and proteins uh, is really good at immobilizing uh, pathogens at kind of sticking them together, making them easier to to uh, to degrade, to to pick up by phagocytosis. And the the thing that they also know is that these nets can activate myeloid cells, uh, dendritic cells, monocytes, and they. Uh, but it's not clear what is the real the mechanism. By until now, wasn't really clear which was the mechanism that the nets did this. And so, basically, what the, what the authors did is, in a series of very elegant experiments, they uh, progressively look at uh, the activated neutrophils in vitro, and they show that uh, when they're, co- they're were together with, with uh, monocytes or um, uh, myeloid cells, they show that the release of these nets induces the the expression of uh, type 1 interference. Uh, And so when they uh, co-culture them with PVMCs, and they uh, slowly kind of tear apart all of the components of the nets, and they come to the conclusion that it is really the DNA in in this nets, and not only the DNA itself, but the DNA as after being degraded by DNAs, DNA is one, it's this extracellular DNAs that uh, commonly will degrade these nets that at some point need to be uh, taken care of and need to be degraded and uh, taken out of the way. And it is this, uh, this DNA sequence, you know, these DNA fragments that activate a very known DNA sensor pathway, which is Seagas sting, uh, which downstream of this pathway is the expression of type 1 interference. And I think what I liked about this paper was that they really they really looked into very closely at all of the different uh, uh, possibilities. They look uh, at, they, they, they do many experiments in which they inhibit CGAS, they inhibit sting, they also inhibit other, the, the effects of other components of the nets uh, to prove that it's, it is really the DNA that is doing the job and it's really the activation of SIGAS and STING that really um, uh, is driving this activation and this interferon production. And I, what I also think they did, which is really, really nice, is they have this beautiful videos, which we should uh, hopefully post into the, the show notes, of uh, ex- of, of new activated neutrophils released in their nets and macrophages and uh, so monocytes coming and uh, phagocytosing the DNA and and the on the on the on the, 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 the nets outside and also what they what they look at which is very important is the fact that seagas only can detect can only bind to uh, can only be activated by DNA in the cytosol. So one of the questions they had is how if, if these how do the, the net get in contact with cytosolic 
sigas. And for that, uh, they, they, they show that uh, what happens is that the nets are, are degraded, partially degraded by DNAs and the outside in the extracellular environment. And then they're taken up by phagocytosis. And then they also show that one of the proteins that is part of the net, which is the neutrophil elastase, can somehow mediate the release of the DNA into the uh, intracellular uh, cytosolic space where it can actually activate uh, uh, CGAS. You would say that like the big impact of this is a lot of the molecular mapping hadn't been done before. So we kind of knew the broad, the broad brush strokes of this process, but not the molecular pathways and like yeah. down to being able to watch it happen and identify what was happening at each point along the way. Yeah, I think that is basically, they show that is what exactly is the molecular mechanism that connects the net being released by the neutrophil and the production of type 1 interferon in uh, the, the myeloid cells that are around the neutrophil. And, of course, this has always activation of, of, of these cells, always is very important for stimulation of the immune response. So I think it's, it's really good to understand how this can happen and also this this the function of this of this uh neutrophil elastase into translocating the nets from the phagosome into the cytosol was not really i don't think was really had been really uh characterized before awesome that's super fascinating all right well i think we're out of time uh for this set of roundups today but we'll, we'll i'm sure we'll be back at it soon with the next set Moving on, we're going to be speaking with Dr. Felipe Peria at Lund University. But before we get to that, are you interested in differentiating human pluripotent stem cells into monocytes? The Stem Diff Monocyte Kit from Stem Cell Technologies generates millions of monocytes ready for downstream assays or for further development to macrophages or dendritic cells. Learn more at www.stemcell.com backslash monocyte kit. Today, we're talking to Felipe Pereira who is an associate professor at the Faculty of Medicine of the University of Lund. His lab at the Lund Stem Cell Center does amazing work studying the differentiation of hematopoietic cells and ways of reprogramming cells towards a hematopoietic lineage, which has exciting applications in regenerative medicine and immunotherapy. Based on this research, Dr. Verita has also co-founded a company, Ascar Therapeutics, which aims at reprogramming tumor cells into antigen-presenting cells that can effectively activate the immune system. Uh, Dr. Pereira, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you so much for the invitation. It's a pleasure to have you here. So, as I mentioned, your lab has great expertise in immune cell reprogramming. And not too long ago, you published a very, very nice paper in Science Immunology that's titled Direct Reprogramming of Fibroblasts into Antigen-Presenting Dendritic Cells. I think it's a fascinating concept. But your journey with reprogramming uh, fibroblasts into hematopoietic cells has a long time, has been working on for a long time. So I was hoping you can maybe tell our listeners a little bit how you got started with this field and what is your lab doing at the moment uh, in, this, in this area? Uh, sure, I think you know, my journey in reprogramming started quite a while ago, 70, 17 years ago. Um, I did my PhD in London. Um, the time, the question 
uh, in this field was that whether we, or not we could take a somatic cell back to the pluripotent state. So we were using cell fusion before uh, Shinya Manaka came out with these four transcription factors that allow us to induce uh, pluripotent stem cells. So we, would we were fusing lymphocytes to embryonic stem cells to study the mechanisms that um, would allow us to impose the pluripotent state. So th then I, I moved to, to New York for my postdoc, where I started bringing these reprogramming concepts to hematopoiesis. And we set out to, to identify the transcription factors that we induce uh, an adult somatic stem cell for the first time, an hematopoietic stem cell. So what we got was this recapitulation of the process of hematopoietic stem cell generation in vitro with the transcription factors CATA2, FOS, and uh, GFI1B. So then in 2015, when I started my own um, independent lab, I was um, uh, motivated by the idea to bring these reprogramming concepts that have been working for a long time to the field of immunology. And uh, we got interested with the dendritic cells because, uh, because of their fantastic um, antigen presentation, uh, you know, capacity for antigen presentation and, and, um, and so on. And then we expanded and now are actually um, interested in many others, uh, many other cells, but always touching the reprogramming as a, as a way uh, to inform us um, in, the, in this journey. So um, the lab now has um, uh, three main uh, areas, all kind of uh, uh, having this uh, core of uh, uh, bringing reprogramming and immunology together. Um, and the first one is to actually use uh, direct reprogramming to understand uh, the transcription factors that initiate and impose uh, immune, immune cell fates. Um, second one, we try to use this uh, um, in um, different ways to uh, treat cancer, right? So you mentioned that we, we uh, apply these networks that we identify and then um, Turn, we're trying to turn cancer cells into efficient antigen present, uh, presenting cells, so to counteract the tumor evasion mechanisms. Um, and then we're so interested in, in the more basic uh, mechanisms of uh, transcription factor engagement and how this process goes uh, through the development of the immune system since the generation of the hematopoietic stem cells towards the mature uh, cell identities. So I've always been really curious uh, since reading your work about why fibroblasts become dendritic cells. I think almost from an evolutionary biology perspective, how how and why has our bodies evolved the ability to go from a fibroblast to a dendritic cell? It seems, you know, at least at first glance, we need to do some thinking about that. I wonder if you had any thoughts about why this program now exists, what's the evolutionary advantage, uh, what functions happen if you, say, ablate it. And do you see some gross dysfunction uh, health-wise that would explain why it's important? I think it's fascinating, right? right that every single cell in our in our body still retains the capacity to become in anything else, right? But it's uh, somehow restricted. The whole set of genes are there, right? And then they are um, restricted by epigenetic mechanisms that uh, that ensure that when the cell divides. A lymphocytes keeps being a lymphocyte and not become a fibroblast, for example, right? So, and it's the, you know, the field started in the beginning of last century actually uh, trying to address this question, right? The field of reprogramming was 
trying to address whether cells would lose genes when the when the they would commit into certain lineages and the, the seminal work by John Gordon has shown this that they not they do not lose genes at least the majority of the cells they retain their ability the plasticity and the ability to generate the whole organisms so in terms of fibroblasts right we use fibroblasts as um, almost like a screening platform because they are easy to isolate relatively homogeneous cell type that we can uh, you know we, we can use tools very easily from you know reporter mice that are that have a gene that are selectively expressed in a certain immune cell type and we use fibroblasts as this um, uh, like tabula rasa cell type where we start from to impose immune immune cell identity uh, so, so the fibroblast not necessarily a hundred percent physiological, but is a a good model system. In other words, yes. So it's a good way to start for us to to identify these transcription factors that are key to elicit the process. But for example, in the case of um, of the dendritic cell reprogramming process, where we identified P1 RF18 path free from mouse fibroblasts, so we've shown that this network is as it's you know it's conserved in in human. Uh, embryonic fibroblasts or in dermal fibroblasts in mesenchymal stem cells and uh, and mouse and human cancer so we, I in in um, in total there's more than 50 cell types that we have shown that the process is conserved and this is still not uh, published but it's uh, it's the work that is ongoing in the, in my life and i guess my last follow-up before i pass the baton back to brenda is how biologically, um, so I guess what processes induce this in, in vivo and in normal host biology? I ask this because I, I come from the intestinal stem cell field to an extent as well. And we found that, you know, adult cells reprogram through a fetal-like process during regeneration. And so this whole fetal program is actually used after injury in adult cells to de-differentiate and heal. And so I'm wondering, you're finding the, these conserved programs where are you seeing it pop up in biological processes? Obviously not regeneration, but say inflammation, infection, other scenarios where you're seeing this reprogramming now occur. Yeah, so it's an it's a interesting point to think about how flexible the cell types are uh, in the organism, right? So is, is, is it as flexible or as like stable as we think they are? Or is it, is it just a much more dynamic uh, um, um, system? So uh, actually, we don't know, and it's actually difficult to to understand and to um, to, to to track this in vivo because once the cell gets reprogrammed, then it becomes indistinguishable from the other from the other cells. So in, when there are cases where where um, you know, in the case of disease, for example, um, there are some certain cancers called metaplasias that uh, they're characterized by patches of um, intestine in the stomach or the reverse and they it's believed that they emerge through the reprogramming of the epithelium uh, you know as exposed to stressors um, but um, it it's also still not very clear where, whether you know what 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 the molecular mechanism that initiate these uh, these conversions in vivo so i guess we need to uh, have better tools to understand these um, 
these sulfate transitions in vivo. Um, but we can, you know, we, we, we can speculate that would be, you know, reactivation of transcription factors or the um, erasure of the epigenetic mechanisms that are maintaining the identity of the cell. And these, these are, uh, you know, probably influenced by, by, um, by pathological conditions like inflammation or, uh, uh, you know, you know, uh, chronic stress, for example, but it's still, it's still very, very, uh, um, open question at this moment. Are you guys able to lineage trace some of the factors you're looking at, or is that still a difficult problem? Uh, I know in, in intestine land, they've been lucky to get some lineage traces, but that may be a fluke of timing and what's been able to come out. I don't know if you guys are having that same hurdle, if you've been able to, you know, surpass that or not. Yeah. So it is so, so far we, um, uh, in, in Malabo we'll focus more on the, you know, in vitro in, uh, reprogramming and we use the in vivo reprogramming as a, um, as a way to counteract uh, the tumor ev evasion mechanism. So um, whether such a um, lineage conversion can in, on the within the dendritic cell lineage can occur in vivo, uh, we don't know. What I was also thinking about, I think the, the implications for reprogramming uh, cells into, for example, antigen-presenting cells, I think are very clear from the therapeutic perspective. Maybe we can talk about that in a moment. But first, I also think what is fascinating is the idea of using reprogramming and uh, playing around with the factors that you use to understand how it happens in the real uh, in the real situation. I think by uh, maybe do you have any any stories or any uh, particular examples that you can you can share about how using these techniques helps us understand what makes the the identity of in this case not immune cells in particular. Yes. So. Um... So for the induction of hemogenic endothelium with um, these uh, other factors, GATA2, FOS, and G5-1B, so we, we also were interested in using this, this system, particularly in the human, as a model for the, um, for the developmental specification of, um, of, of hematopoietic stem cells. So it's very hard to, to access that in the embryo, right, in the human embryo. You know, it's very hard to study, uh, to study this process. So we wonder whether... You know, because we can recapitulate that in vitro with with the force expression of these three transcription factors. So if, if we can understand a little bit more about this process and how these factors do it. So what we have done in the beginning of the, the, of the reprogramming, so it, we map the initial engagement of these factors and their inter interdependencies to the chromatin. So, uh, our idea was let's see where they bind and if they need each other to bind to the target sites and what are the genes that they are binding to in the first place and whether this is would be um, important uh, genes for hematopoiesis. So what we found was that um, uh, you know interestingly there was one factor got the two so we we did chip sequencing at the in the beginning of uh, reprogramming that. Um, so this factor binds to the majority of the targets, so it's a dominant transcription factor, and it does so uh, independently of the others. Uh, but the other two, GFR1B and FOS, require the presence of GATA2 to 
to um, you know to be recruited to the target sites. So uh, so we kind of uncover the you know the cooperation between the two transcription factors to elicit um, uh, this hemogenic program, but also uh, the critical role of GATA2 in the, uh, leading the way towards the, the, you know, the program and uh, kind of capturing the other factors into this complex that, uh, that allows to kickstart the process. So now we are interested, of course, now with the dendritic cells and the multiple uh, types of dendritic cells that we are generating, whether this is also the case uh, here. Do they need cooperative binding? And is, is, are there transcription factors that are more important than others to kickstart uh, this, uh, this process or, or not? That seems like a great system to to look into this uh, part of the development that is so hard to access otherwise. Mm -hmm. And so maybe could you talk to us a little bit more about this idea that you are developing of using pre-programming tumor cells to kind of as a little horse uh, to you call it a you call it a drone horse uh, approach to present antigens to to the immune system and. A little bit about this is very interesting that you you are uh, going forward into bringing it to the clinic and uh, that sounds uh, fascinating. Yeah, so it it evolved the idea evolved organically, let's say, and we we didn't thought about this in the beginning when we started the project. We we were more we were driven by the idea to to bring bring these two concepts together, so this uh, reprogramming and uh, and uh, immune responses, right? So, um, but then during the course of the of the project, we thought, well, you know, if we can reprogram fibroblasts from species, maybe we can we can reprogram uh, cancer cells and and force them to present their uh, their new antigens, right? So the ones that they acquired during the, the, the um, tumor formation and they are hiding from the immune system with tumor evasion mechanisms. So. For example, with the downregulation of MHC molecules. So, so that we started like that, and then we we then would you know develop this idea um, because some of, of the people in my lab were very interested in innovation and um, and uh, and starting new ventures. So we also start thinking about what, what would be the easiest way or the most attractive way to get uh, to develop this into a product, and. Um, so then this this kind of a mature from a cell therapy into a gene therapy because with a gene therapy where we could deliver the three factors inside the tumors would be um, uh, off-the-shelf therapy. So the same viral vector would fit everyone. But at the same time, we keep the personalized uh, nature of the response because the new antigens would be, would be patient and cancer uh, specific. So... Um, yes, I, I guess that that was why we got into into this idea, but um, also a little bit of luck because um, when we started this project, we screened for 18 transcription factors expressed in dendritic cells, and the type of dendritic cell that we we got with these three hits uh, were dendritic cells type one that uh, are being. And, um, implicated in these recent years to be critical for eliciting uh, cytotoxic uh, responses in the tumors, and they have 
necessary inside the tumors and also migrating to lymph nodes to kickstart the response against cancer. So, um, yes, so I thought we thought, well, those are the ideal cells. They are, they are very rare uh, in the peripheral blood. They are very rare in tumors. So if, if we can reinstate them um, by reprogramming the cancer cells or the other cells in the vicinity of the tu in the tumor, with this approach, this would be um, uh, would be revolutionary. So that's that's what we are aiming towards. And you also mentioned that you're aiming at these cancer cells to present new antigens uh, to the immune system, but we know that also tumor cells express other tumor-associated antigens that could potentially be targets of the immune system. But why are you focusing on new antigens? And what kind of data do you have to, to support that idea? So, so, so far we have a, a model antigen data. So we, we have cells that are expressing endogenously the model, uh, model antigen. And we know that after they, they get reprogrammed in vitro, they become uh, able to present that antigen and elicit CD8 uh, T cell activation and proliferation. So we don't really, you know, we're not really focusing on the neoantigens. Just the whole overall idea is that the cell starts to be uh, becoming monogenic uh, and not uh, evasive, right? So, but we think that you know the, the chances for um, for these cells then to present these. Uh, neoantigens that were not were hidden from the immune system so after reprogramming will be much higher and we don't need to know which uh, which neoantigens are there right which could also be a, a challenging challenging topic to identify and distinguish these new neoantigens from the tumor antigens Gotcha. So, so given that you, I, mean, I think that's a really strong advantage of what you have is you don't have to worry about any given neoantigen to replicate. And it sounds like you can, if you just turn on, that approach is just turning on some DCs. What are your plans on how to then selectively or not convert too many random cells in your body to be DC1s? Or are you going to try to have the, the, the gene therapy vector go towards the cancer and do something kind of in that area, but you don't care what, how are you, as again, how are you going to narrow this reprogramming of anything that it touches into a DC one to be, you know, not, so I don't have DC ones lighting up in my heart and my lungs and my gut and, you know, causing a giant uh, cytokine storm, but they are activating, you know, in cancer land. Yeah, so uh, totally agree with you. And the delivery is the problem here, right? And the, it's not only for us, but for uh, for many other uh, groups attempting to develop uh, in vivo uh, in vivo gene therapies. So uh, we, you know, at what's what we are doing now is it kind of diversifying the ways we um, are attempting to deliver the three factors uh, in vivo, which then you know, uh, will open uh, many different opportunities. So we are using lentivirals, but also now starting to test adenovirus and, and RNA. So that we could, you know, uh, in some of the cases, try to adapt this system for a IV delivery, where um, we'll be not so limited by the intertumoral injections. But so far, I mean, we're, we're pursuing um, an intertumoral injection of um, 
called antiviral vector, which is relatively big and does not spread that much um, through the body. So besides working on reprogram dritic cells, is there other, other research in your lab that you would like to maybe uh, share with us or some other uh, new ideas that you guys are working on? So, you know, I have um, this ambition of being able to program every single immune cell and to map the, um, the transcription factor networks that control uh, every single decision along along the way, right? But um, so we are we are kind of uh, uh, trying to find um, more efficient ways to um, uh, identifying these um, reprogramming transcription factors and and um, using the myelin lineage first, but uh, also uh, doing the first steps into the into the lymphoid lineage because this is a territory that is completely unexplored and no one has has, uh, has come up with a, you know the, with this set of transcription factors that would program a T cell for example so um, uh, so we are we are interested about that and 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 uh, having a more efficient ways to to screen and to induce um, in this this cell types uh, do you have any idea why the lymphoid lineages have been so hard to sort out in a way like you know the b cells are highly plastic and they become eventually you know these permanent plasma cells and such but but at least in you know at a high level framework they have a lot of they have a lot of i don't want to say pluripotency but they have a lot of lineage steps that are known that they go through but i agree like the reprogramming is seemed to be very poorly understood you think it's a feature of things like a b cell where they should you know should air quotes here but kind of i've been evolved to work in one direction and just become more and more specific to an antigen and then preserve or do you think it's that we've just had poor tools maybe it's both and if you could comment on that so what i think is that uh, um yeah, so you know, the cells mature in different places. They need to go right to different anatomic uh, places to get different signals, and it's uh, complicated to recapitulate that in vitro. But I, on the other hand, I don't think anyone has really tried. So um, you know, it, it, it doesn't it doesn't mean that it's uh, hard. You know, uh, so that's that's why. We want to we want to to try because I, I don't know how much this was being uh, attempted before, right? So, but uh, yes, uh, you know it's 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 more complicated than the than the myeloid cell, uh, I would say. I wonder, kind of thinking in the future, is there a future in which you envision uh, no more need for like bone marrow transplants? You can just reprogram your bone marrow from some cell and then get that yourself? Is that something that you you think would be, I don't know, possible, achievable? So that was something that, um, you know, since I was a postdoc, we, that was the, you know, the final, the, the target, right? So we, we have like a much more available source of stem cells for uh, for transplantation. The, the, the hurdle and the, and the challenge that we and others face, right? So some other groups working in this in this field was that then 
that the functionality of the stem cells is uh, the metabolic stem cell is is some you know, somewhat impaired when compared to the natural ones. So it's very hard to have um, uh, completely engraft you know an engraftable cell that would be then in the body and producing blood for a long time. So um, uh, this has been a challenge, but it's pretty much you know it's also associated with the fact that we we don't have very good conditions to culture hematopoietic stem cells in vitro. So then the two things together really um, makes this um, uh, kind of the holy grail of uh, uh, stem cell biology to be able to generate these hematopoietic uh, uh, stem cells in vitro. But um, um, we are working hard on that and not only academic groups, but also uh, companies that uh, start um, accepting the challenge. So we hopefully see uh, some big developments in the next years. Fascinating. And I think this is a really interesting field. There's so much uh, to yet to do, you know, self-renewing uh, patient stem cells, uh, sabotaging cancer cells. That sounds all a very, very exciting work. So something we always like to do before we wrap up is uh, get to know the the person behind the scientist a little bit. And so we always uh, try to get a few questions for you. So the first one is uh, that to send at you is if you were not a scientist, what would you be? So what what drove me initially to become uh, a scientist was um, so I, I was trying to decide whether I would become an architect or or a biologist, uh, and this was an 96, 97, um, there was at the time where Dolly was um, uh, was cloned, and I was so you know I was fascinated with the concept that we could you know turn one cell into a whole new organism, and uh, and that was like the balancing point uh, to 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 pursue a career in bi in biology. Uh, yeah, the alternative was to be to be an architect. I really will. I like to kind of uh, you know, have this create, create creativity and also the, the planning of uh, something that you want to build. So there was, so these two things were always uh, uh, with me. I would argue that now you're basically an architect of biology, uh, building your your own cells. So I would say that you kind of went both ways. Yeah. So at the end, the two things. Um, <laughs> Uh, merge. So, yes, we had like me and my group have been uh, architects of uh, self fate. There you go. So, then the, the second one is what is the best piece of advice that you've ever been given? This can be professional or not, just something that stuck with you throughout time. So, my, uh, my PhD mentor, when I was finishing and leaving the lab, uh, she told me, so when you have when you have your own lab, so don't ask uh, or don't do anything that um, you will not like to be done yourself, right? Uh, so, um, and she she was meaning like, so hire or, you know, get associated with very good people and then, you know, leave them alone in terms of, uh, leave their, give them space to be creative and to be, uh, and, and, and to contribute. And ask only only for the final, you know. Keep reminding what's the what's the what's the objective, and uh, 
don't get you know don't be too too much into the into the detail let's say or too too um, um, controlling about about the whole steps of the process because um, this this will be detrimental to the to the overall aim of what we are trying to do and you know I, and this was uh, something that I didn't really understand at the time but uh, as soon as I started my group I really realized that uh, this was a big uh, big piece of advice. Don't micromanage your people, basically. Let them be. Yeah, exactly, right? And uh, because, you know, you, everyone gets their fair amount of stress and pressure at the, at the different levels, so we all work the same, right? And But, um, you know, it's very easy for you to become in, 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 you know, lose patience and start uh, asking too much about uh, and too... To, too frequently or too too much about you know the individual people. So you, you know you just need to remind it uh, and to keep uh, the goals in place and uh, and, and everything falls uh, eventually falls into into place. Yeah. Well, thank you again for your time. Um, speaking of people, is there any other you know announcements? Are you looking for postdocs, grad students, technicians at any point? Yes, actually, we have a we have an open position for a senior scientists. So this is actually a very, uh, very good permanent uh, position in the lab. So um, um, we hope um, to uh, attract the best candidates uh, from um, all over the world. But um, we are all, always um, welcoming uh, uh, applications for the uh, for good postdocs. So. Uh, Either the computational um, biologists, but also also um, wet lab scientists. All right, great. Well, thank you for your time again. It's been a pleasure. Yeah. Thank you, um, Brenda and Jason. It was um, it was great having this conversation with you. That's great to hear more about your science. Wonderful work you guys are doing. Thank you so okay. much for talking to us. Okay. Thank you so much. Bye bye. That brings us to the end of our show. Don't forget to subscribe to our newsletter at www.immunologypodcast.com to get the show notes, including an episode summary and links to all of the interview and rounded papers. You can also reach out to us on Twitter at, at immunopodcast or via email at info at immunologypodcast.com with feedback or to suggest guests. 